As we begin, I will uh, confess to my brothers in beards that I am struggling. I'm not yet comfortable with what's happening on my face, but um, I'm in that awkward stage, don't really know what to do, so I uh, can't promise it'll be here forever, but um, you can pray that I would uh, just know how to live with this thing, so... Um, we're in a, a series, a brief series, and, and though it's been not week after week for various reasons, we're uh, doing something that I do each year when we come to the new year. I usually begin the new year uh, with a special series, a topical series. Uh, there have been many over the years, but this year, because of the 21-plus uh, years that I've been here in New Jersey. I wanted to reflect back on the beginning of my time here, and uh, to do that, I'm going back to sermons that I preached the last time uh, we were together, and I was preaching, I believe it was on the 16th of January, and we looked at the very first sermon that I preached at Village as their pastor. This morning, we're going to do something a little bit different and go even before that, but as you uh, open your Bibles, I would ask that you would turn to the book of Micah. That is our text this morning on page 929 in your pew Bible. Page 929, and we encourage you to have your Bible open before you so that you might read along and uh, go to other verses as we refer to them. One of the questions I've been asked over the years of being in pastoral ministry is very simple and yet an important one. Most of the time it comes from younger children, and it's this, how does a pastor find a job? In other words, how does a pastor find a church to pastor? What's the process? Is it the same as everyone else? Is it different? Well, in some traditions, as you may know, the Methodist tradition, for instance, in the first church I served in western Pennsylvania, I had a good friend who was in the Methodist church there in town, and after five years, the bishop came in and said, time to go. Didn't matter that the church was actually growing and doing very well in the Methodist tradition generally. I'm not sure if it's the same today as it was then, but after about five to seven years, the bishop comes in and says, I need you over here and someone else is going to come here. I can't imagine that, but that's not how we do it in the PCA. And so here's how we do it in the PCA. A little over 21 years ago, my family and I were living in North Carolina and in God's providence, my time at the PCA church there that I was serving was coming to an end. While it was not what we had originally intended or planned, it is clear, and it is clear now more so than ever, that that is what God was calling us to, even though at the time it was very difficult for us as a family. And so my time serving as pastor of that small church came to an end, and I did what any unemployed minister does in the PCA. First, I started to work with a neighbor and friend, a fellow believer who owned a heating and air conditioning company. I learned all that I could about installing those uh, systems in new homes. Uh, what the Lord taught me during that time is really another story, and it's an important one in my life, but I'll spare you those details for now. And after that, I spent all of the rest of my time doing what anyone else does, anyone else does when looking for a job. I put lots of things together that are required for ministers looking for a church. I prepared a thorough resume. I did what is called a ministerial data form, which I believe are still being used in the PCA, which is a, a series, a long series of questions and all sorts of things, along with any other documents that may be required by any churches to whom you're speaking. And of course, you have to send audio tapes of recent sermons. Uh, we didn't have uh, the technology then that we do now, and so now it would just be giving them a link to something on Sermon Audio. But at that point, you would send audio tapes, and you would send them to any churches that requested them as you found out about those churches through our denomination, which really has a clearinghouse of all of the opportunities, the openings within the PCA. And then I waited. I waited, as everyone does when they look for a job. I waited for churches to respond, and then as they expressed some interest, there would be lots of phone calls back and forth, meeting with committee chairmen first, and then whole committees all by phone. At the time, I was talking to three different churches and was at very different stages 
of what essentially is a very long interview process. One of those churches, of course, was a small congregation in Mount Laurel named Village Presbyterian Church. If you want the perspective of the church on this process, talk to Deacon David Rockhill for the story of how all of this happened from their end and perspective, since Dave served as the chairman of the pastoral search committee at that time. Once it is clear in this very long process that you are interested in the church and the church is expressing some serious interest in you, then plans are made for a visit in person, usually with your family, and spend some time during those visits getting to know the people, usually the committee first, the pastoral search committee, and then various members of the congregation as the Lord allows. It gives you a chance to know them, they a chance to know you. I will spare you all of the wonderful details and memories of those visits to highlight only two. One of the reasons for an in-person visit at some point in the process is that such a man who is looking to be the pastor of a church must be examined by the presbytery, in this case the New Jersey presbytery, to make sure that the man is qualified to serve as a pastor in this church. And the second reason for coming in person is to preach what is called a candidating sermon. Now, this is like an interview with about 50 people, in my case, or an interview with 450 people in the case of larger churches. It is a chance for the church to hear you preach in person, something they will consider when the congregation later votes to call you as their pastor. Some of those people during that time, when I came to preach that sermon, are here today. Poor people. They've listened to me for 21 plus years. How does a pastor prepare then for that special time? I suppose, and I was laughing as Pastor Fisher referenced the, the news coming out of some larger denominations that there are actually pastors who plagiarize, who take whole sermons from others. I could have done that. I could have taken a very obscure but very good R.C. Sproul sermon, preached it as my own to impress people with all that I supposedly knew. It's not something I would ever do. Praise God. And so I prepared two sermons for that occasion with this motivation and aim. I wanted the people sincerely, the people of village, to understand what I believed about our God and about his church and about what he has done for us in Christ and about what that means for us as those who are called by his name. I wanted them to know me and my fundamental commitment as a minister of the word of God, what I believed about ministry, what people called philosophy of ministry, and about the God who called me to be a pastor. And so the first sermon that I prepared was the sermon that I preached on that day. It was based on Mark 10:45. It was called The Heart of the Gospel, Sacrifice and Service. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. It spoke of my own understanding after a few years of ministry, of what Christ uh, did for us, of his ministry to us as sinners, as well as what I believed should mark the ministry of any man called to be a pastor. It is also a model for all Christians as we seek to faithfully follow Christ. That is, again, the sermon that I preached. I believe it was October or November of 2000, the first sermon I ever preached here in New Jersey. The second sermon I prepared is the one I'm preaching to you this morning. So would you stand as we hear God's word? Micah chapter 7, I'm only going to read the three verses that are the heart of what I want to say this morning. Verse 18, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. 
He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, thank you that as we read these words, as we hear them, and the Spirit presses them into our hearts and minds, that you would grant us understanding of the depth of these things, that we would know you afresh even this morning as the God of all compassion towards us. Thank you for your love to us in Jesus. Thank you for all that is ours in him. Bless your word to our hearing and growth, we pray, that we might know him better. We pray this in his name and with thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Whenever Christians hear the word evangelism, don't be scared. There can be a variety of reactions. Guilt, because we haven't been doing it. Fear, because the pastor is now going to remind thee that I should be doing it. And doubt, because we've never been taught how to do it. There could be other reactions as well. But one of the things that has been for me a great encouragement when I think about evangelism, which I view simply as telling people about Jesus and calling them to repentance and faith, a natural and God's providence part of our everyday lives. One of the great encouragements has been to study and seek to understand better, more and more, the character of the God we are seeking to proclaim. We have to know who he is if we're going to proclaim him rightly, right? It makes sense. We have to know our subject matter if we're going to talk intelligently about it. And so understanding the character of God, the nature of God, what moves God, if you will, is very, very important when you consider evangelism. The focus on the character of God is critical if we're going to avoid some very common mistakes that are often made in evangelism. J.I. Packer wrote a wonderful, it's an older book now, uh, he is now with the Lord, but he alludes to these problems, some of them, in his excellent book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He's dealing with the subject, if, if God is sovereign, why is it that we have to evangelize? His conclusion, of course, is that's part of what God has worked in, if you will, into his sovereign will and purpose, is that through evangelism, his people proclaiming Christ to others is the very means that he'll use, along with the Spirit and the Word, of course, primarily the Spirit and the Word, to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. One of the mistakes that Packer alludes to there and speaks about is the approach to evangelism that has as its goal getting people saved and that they themselves can somehow accomplish that conversion. That mistake is rooted in a failure to understand that God is sovereign in salvation, that it's God who does the great work, that it's, it's his work as he uses the spirit and the word of God to open men's hearts, to bring them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you, when you don't have that understanding, you, you can feel very easily drawn into the idea that we can sort of manipulate people, that we can sort of uh, cut corners in our evangelism, seeking only the great goal that we have, which is not the glory of God ultimately, but the conversion of this man getting or this woman getting people saved. When we forget that, we forget that God is the author of salvation, the great mover in men's hearts. And he does that through the faithful proclamation of the gospel through his servants like you and I. We are not, the Bible clearly teaches, the primary means of conversion. We're only the secondary means, the means that God is pleased to use often when he draws people to himself. But on the opposite side, Packer says there's often another problem that comes when we forget the character and nature of God. And that is, especially for Reformed folks, we can fall into a trap of restricting the proclamation of the gospel in order to protect, protect God's character. 
We develop our own limitations of who we will proclaim it to. We won't tell those people because clearly they're really bad sinners. They don't really care anyway. And how we will proclaim it, we don't talk too much about the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God, but we are sure to emphasize, sometimes overwhelmingly so to a fault, the unbearable wrath of God. I think Packer is right when he looks at these sort of two extremes that we are easily tempted to fall into, either one, both rooted in a misunderstanding of the character and nature of God. While the first error mentioned is one of a theological nature, the second is an error of balance, specifically failing to be balanced in our understanding of God's character and nature. If you read older saints, older writings from years ago, some of the great evangelists of our tradition, our Reformed tradition, thinkers like Jonathan Edwards, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and so many others, these men so clearly maintained a balance between the character and nature of God while also proclaiming the whole character of God as he's revealed in the scriptures. They didn't lessen one over another. They simply proclaimed the truth of God's word to sinners like you and like me, allowing God by the spirit to work through that word and draw those whom he has ordained for salvation to himself. The Bible declares, and this is the focus of the sermon this morning, the Bible declares that our God is a compassionate and forgiving God, and that we are called to declare him as such to this lost and dying world. And to do that, we come to these verses. They come at the end of uh, prophet Micah, who is very much unknown to most of us, perhaps with the exception of chapter 5 where we know the prophecy of the birthplace of the Messiah is found. Otherwise, he's fairly obscure, as most of the minor prophets are. And yet, we know historically he was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. And we surely know him fairly well by now, I trust, after spending a couple of years in his prophecy studying that word together. But Micah is known, really, for two additional and quite remarkable reasons in the broad plan of God's redemptive purposes. We know, according to Jeremiah, according to Isaiah, that it was the prophecy of uh, Micah of Moresheth that God used in the life of King Hezekiah. As the city of Jerusalem was being besieged by Sennacherib and the Assyrian armies, it was, the scriptures tell us, the prophecy of Micah that God used to turn the heart of Hezekiah and to lead him to repentance. And you know the rest of the story. God had mercy upon Jerusalem for the, that reason, because of Hezekiah's repentance. He spared the city. But it was all because of the preaching of Micah, the prophet. And then secondly, and some 100 years after the life of Micah and Isaiah, in Jeremiah chapter 26, we're told that when Jeremiah was very near to being killed by those who hated him, the priests and the other prophets, because Jeremiah prophesied of the destruction of Jerusalem, you may remember in chapter 26 of Jeremiah, it is stated that they brought up the instance and the preaching of Micah, who also prophesied, as did Isaiah, who also prophesied of the destruction of Jerusalem. And their question was, did they kill Micah at that time when he spoke that? And the answer was no, they didn't. They heard his message. Hezekiah repented. And so they used that as an argument. And Jeremiah's life was spared because of the faithfulness of Micah, the prophet. And so while he is simply a minor prophet, he is significant in the history of God's redemption. His name, as you know, means, strangely enough, who is like God? And see that prominently in the passage we've just read. It is a wonderful name that is a reminder all through the book that there is no one like our God. 
For Micah, there is no one like him in judgment and righteousness and justice. That was the big issue in Micah's day as it was in Isaiah's. There was no justice to be found. And he was prophesying of God's hatred of that condition and his righteous judgment to be poured out because of it. He's also a God who is faithful to his covenant and all that he has promised. There's no one, Micah says, even by his name, no one who is like our God. The words echo the words of Exodus 15 read earlier in the Song of Moses. As Moses considers the destruction of the Egyptian army in the sea, he says the very same thing. Who is like you, O God, among the gods? Who who is like you showing such power over his enemies, able to destroy them in a moment and at his pleasure? Who is like our God? Micah echoes those thoughts in these verses. But you'll notice in these three verses, which conclude his whole prophecy, his focus seems to be aimed at the mercy and compassion that God has to sinners like you and like me. Micah, perhaps more than any other, demonstrates the principle that our God remembers mercy even in the midst of his righteous judgments. The verses before us are verses 18 through 20. They come at the final section of his prophecy. Most of his prophecy is filled, as Isaiah's was in so many places, with uh, judgments of God against his people. He speaks primarily to Judah, although he references the fall of the northern kingdom. His main focus is against Judah, the lack of justice where there should be justice, righteousness where there should be righteousness. And so he speaks of God's judgment. But like Isaiah, he also throws in and adds all through his prophecy, these wonderful pictures of God's mercy and his promises to his remnant, those who are his, whom he has ordained unto salvation. Look back, for instance, in verses 8 through 10 of this last chapter, you can see as he winds down his prophecy in these verses, he sees himself. You can see that in verses 8 through 10. He acknowledges his sin, that he sits in darkness, that he has sinned, verse 9, against the Lord. He acknowledges his sin before God. He confesses his need of forgiveness. And he says at the same time that he has a confidence in God in the midst of his enemies. Uh, one writer, as I was studying this week, uh, reminded me as I was listening Uh, that John Bunyan actually quoted this very verse, verse 8 of chapter 7, in his account of Christian and his battle with Apollyon. Remember that in Pilgrim's Progress. As he's fighting Apollyon and as he finally is given victory, there are two verses that he quotes at the end of that time. One of them is Romans 8.37, I have become more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus, my Lord. The other is this one, verse 8, rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall, I shall rise. And so... Micah speaks here about his own sin, his need of confession, and yet the confidence he has in God before his enemies. In verses 10 through 13, as we saw in Isaiah, Micah also speaks about the expansion of God's kingdom. Similar to Isaiah, again, as he ends his prophecy with the promise that God is going to take Zion and expand its walls and borders. You see that in verse 11. A day for the building of your walls, and that day the boundary shall be extended and shall include the Gentiles, even the very enemies of God who were always against God's people. Yet among them there will be people that God will redeem. His kingdom will expand. And then beautifully in verses 14 through 17, the Lord, uh, through the prophet Micah, speaks to God that he would be the shepherd of his people that he would care for them, protect them, even in the midst of their enemies, that he would provide them safe haven in places like Bashan and Gilead, that he would keep them safe in the midst of all of their trials and afflictions. This all leads to the verses that we are going to briefly look at this morning, which again is a play on Micah's own name. As you look again at those verses, they're not long, and so you see them before you. 
You can see this reference to words like steadfast love in verse 18, steadfast love to Abraham in verse 20, as well as the word in verse 19, compassion. He will have compassion on us according to the ESV. Now, what's interesting about this is that uh, the word mercy can be used for all three of those. It often is translated that ways in other places. But in verse 18 and in verse 20, where you see steadfast love here in the ESV, it is the more common word that we see for mercy in the Bible, especially, obviously, in the Old Testament, the word chesed, right? It is that covenant love and faithfulness of God. Very common again in the scriptures, most oftenly a reference to the loving kindness of God with respect to his covenant faithfulness. That those with whom he is in covenant with in Abraham, that his love and mercy is directed towards them. It's the foundation of his actions towards sinners who only deserve his wrath. It is because of his steadfast love. It is because of his covenant faithfulness that he redeems a people because of the promises that he has made. But this other word right in the middle, verse 19, is really what I want to focus more on this morning. It is in the Hebrew a different word, and it expresses a similar but somewhat different meaning. For here it expresses the very heart of God towards lost sinners. It is translated here as compassion. It can be translated so beautifully as tender mercies. It's raw calm in the Hebrew, and it's a word that only appears once in the book of Micah, several other places in the Old Testament. But it is an expression of God's pity to those who are in misery or in distress. In many places, it is used in a broader sense rather than exclusively regarding God's covenant people. For instance, famously in Psalm 145, not the same exact word, but the same intent and meaning, the Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Without distinction there, not excluding the the unregenerate and even the animals of the world. So many of the Psalms talk about his his goodness to all that he has created. And so when we're looking at this idea broadly of the mercy of God as represented here in these verses, here are some definitions to keep in mind. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology says this, the goodness or love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress, irrespective of what they deserve. The goodness or love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress. Webster's Dictionary, sympathetic consciousness of others' distress, together with a desire to alleviate it. And when we talk about God and we look at God having mercy and compassion on sinners, only God can reconcile that. Only God can change that. Only God can alleviate all the distress and misery that comes because of our sin. A.A. Hodge says this very helpfully, God's mercy of which the more passive forms are pity and compassion is the divine goodness exercised with respect to the miseries of his creatures, feeling for them and making provision for their relief, and in the case of impenitent sinners, leading to long-suffering patience. God is patient, the scriptures say, with this world, with sinners in general. He is long-suffering, Probably one of the greatest expressions of this great mercy and compassion of God as being so central to his character is found in the interaction between God and Moses. Remember, after the golden calf, Moses says this to the Lord, please, Lord, show me your glory. Show me, in essence, what it is that sets you apart and makes you the God that you are, unlike any other God, as Micah is referencing here. 
And you remember the Lord's answer. I will make all of my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Here God was revealing to Moses the the heart, if you will, the essence of his character. It is his glory. When Moses asked to see his glory, God says, this is my glory. I am a compassionate, gracious, merciful God. And I will show mercy and have compassion on all on whom I will have it. According to the Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs, Solomon says this, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. That's our glory as human beings. When we overlook an offense, it's, it's characteristic of who the God we serve, of who he is. And, and so it's part of our glory, part of what makes us like God in that sense that we overlook an offense. He delights, Micah says here. Notice the words here. He delights, it says, himself in steadfast love, in that loving kindness, in that mercy which he shows to his people. He delights in it, delights in being faithful to all that he has promised to Abraham. Verse 19 is that word again that we noted as compassion, It demonstrates his pity for us as he deals with the very problem that is central to who we are as fallen human beings. He deals with our sins, that which separates us from his love. And he does this to them according to verse 19. He treads our iniquities under his feet. The language is graphic and it's visible We can see it, if you will, with our eyes, the treading of something under our feet, the crushing of it in such a way that it simply, if you will, disappears and is gone. And that's clear as you look at the rest of verse 19, casting all of our sins into the depths of the sea, never to be raised again, never to be brought up again against us. As you think about what Micah is saying here about the compassion and the mercy and faithfulness of God, we need to see it as finally and fully being revealed in the person of his son at the cross of the son's work there at the cross where Colossians 2, as was read earlier, says, God has taken all of our sins and placed them on Christ there at the cross and everything was taken away. There by Jesus. It is in Jesus that all of this, of course, is fulfilled. The passing over of transgression, the delighting in steadfast love, the removal of his anger, the treading under feet or underfoot, the sins that we have committed, casting all of them into the depths of the sea, or as the psalmist says, into the sea of his forgetfulness. It's at the cross where all of that takes place. Micah wants us, as he ends his prophecy, to understand the compassion of God and his mercy towards sinners. Uniquely, yes, and clearly only received ultimately and effectively or effectually by those whom he chooses for salvation. But the picture here in Micah, the picture that we see in other places is that the reason God does this is because as a God, unlike any other God, he delights in these things. He delights in them to show mercy and compassion, to treat us with pity and with kindness. Well, as you think about that picture, which again is very brief at the end of Micah, it's a wonderful way for him to end this prophecy. If you read it all and come to this, you can rejoice that he ends with this picture playing on his own name. One writer says as if he is signing the artwork of his his uh, prophecy uh, with his own name, reminding the reader that that like his name says, there is no God like our God. And this is what sets him apart. But what does that mean then for us as those who follow him? 
and who seek to walk in his ways. What does the compassion of God do to us and for us? How does it impact our lives, especially as we began, as we think about this area of evangelism and how we speak to the world around us? What does it do? Three things, I believe, that may be helpful this morning as we consider uh, the application of these things, especially with an aim towards our evangelism. Number one, it compels us. It forces us to see man and this fallen world as they really are, helpless and without hope. You see, the compassion of God, what is his by his very nature, establishes the fact that all men are helpless. For if they were not helpless, if we were not helpless, there would be no need for compassion and all, pity, mercy, kindness, love. We are called, according to God's word, to see mankind the way God sees mankind, lost and helpless apart from his grace, even as we were before his love and grace were shed abroad in our hearts. And yet so often we don't see people that way, that we live with or that we live before on our day-to-day -day lives. More often we believe the lie that they are putting forth, all is well. Life is good. Prosperity is mine. I'm enjoying my life. I have no need of God. Is that what we're to believe, even though they might be telling us that? No, the Bible tells us because God is who he is. And he looks at this creation, all that he has made because of sin, and looks upon it with great mercy and compassion and tenderness of heart. Even in the broadest sense, not in the salvific sense, but even in the broadest sense, how he looks at a lost and fallen world. There is something in God, and the scriptures make it clear, that moves in pity and compassion to this fallen world. Well, the Bible is clear. That's not how we're to view the world. As those who say life is good, prosperity is mine, I'm enjoying life, why do I need God? But instead, let the word of God lead us and guide us. Romans 3, for instance, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks for God. They all together have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There's no one who is good, who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Their use, they use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. That is God's own testimony as to the nature of fallen humanity. And that is what we are to see as we look at people in our lives who are apart from Christ. This is who they are. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. That's not the picture people like to present. And when we've come to faith in Christ by the mercies of God and we read these verses, we're often shocked to imagine that this is who we once were. But it was. It was who we were before God redeemed us. Certainly with regard to ultimate issues of death and judgment, there is no hope for outside of Christ is only the wrath of God. But in him there is mercy and compassion and grace and love. In the first church I served in Pittsburgh, uh, north of Pittsburgh, actually, we worked with the youth of the church where we were serving. And I remember one trip we took as a youth group. We went down to Pittsburgh. If you've ever been to Mount Washington in Pittsburgh, you can take the incline up or you can drive up. It provides just a wonderful, beautiful vista of the city. The three rivers converging. You see the stadiums now. There are two of them. There used to be just one, and there would have been one at this time. And I said to the students or the children, the youth who were there, I asked them a question. I said, look at this city before you. It's a beautiful, beautiful city, a beautiful view from that vantage point. And I asked them this question. I said, what do you see? What do you see as you look down that city? 
Well, the answers were predictable. I see the three rivers converging. I see Three Rivers Stadium there. I see the beautiful buildings, tall buildings, small buildings. I see old buildings. But not one of the kids, not one of them said, I see the people, people who need the Lord. Not one of them. And, and it wasn't a guilt sort of thing for, that, for me. It was just simply to prove a point. When we look at the world, we're often distracted by everything around us, the beautiful things that God has made, the beautiful cities that we view and look at. But so few of us, so few of us think first and foremost about the people. My point is this. What drives us to think about the people first above all things is the compassion of God that he has and that he grants to us as he brings us to faith in Jesus Christ and compels us to see people as they really are. Secondly, it compels us to live differently in this lost and fallen world. It's not enough to simply begin to see something is true. One must always put the truth into practice. We're called to live as Christ's followers, not simply to be his followers in the sense that we bear his name only. Those who bear his name are called to live his life or more like Galatians says, to allow Christ to live his life through us. And brothers and sisters, if Christ is living his life through us, we will be filled with compassion, compassion towards those who are lost fallen, separated from God and his love. We will be filled every day of our lives with a compassion that moves and motivates us to proclaim the gospel to them, to give them the hope that is found only in him. I'm reminded of the words of the Apostle Paul, and perhaps tonight as we gather on Zoom, we can talk about some of the ramifications of these verses. You know them well, I think, but they are a challenge to us. For though Paul writes, I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those who are under the law, I became as one under the law, no, not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those outside of the law, the Gentiles, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are outside of the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. You see what Paul's saying there. I've become all things to all people. Now, there are all sorts of things we can say about that. But hear the compassion of the Apostle Paul. Rooted, no doubt, in his heart by his understanding of his God and the character of his God, full of compassion and mercy and pity towards the lost. And he desired to reach them all, to win them all to Christ. Finally, it compels us to preach Christ then and him crucified. It only makes sense. We have no answer in ourselves. We can't offer them something that we've contrived in some way. A better life can be if you do this or this or this. All that we have, all that we have is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which most clearly demonstrates the compassion, pity, and mercy of God than anything else we could ever say, pointing them to Jesus, God looking upon sinners in Christ with pity and compassion seeing their helpless and hopeless condition outside of Christ and meeting that deepest need through his sufficient Savior and sacrifice, our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, have we forgotten what that was like to live apart from Christ? Have we forgotten the vanity and the emptiness of life? We're studying it on Wednesdays. The book of Ecclesiastes is reminding us every week that Outside of Jesus, life is nothing but vanity and a chasing after the wind. The place apart from the love of God known in our hearts. The place of fear and death and doubts about living, which everyone apart from Christ struggles with. The place where we lacked even before we came to faith. We lacked real purpose and meaning in life. The dark place of blindness to spiritual things and the ignorance of mind concerning the things of God. All of these were once part of our experience when we did not know Christ before his grace 
and his love shined upon us in the gospel. Have we forgotten where we came from that we can no longer relate to those who are around us? Brethren, if we cannot say with great sincerity and conviction, it is Christ that makes life, life. It is Christ that makes life, life. If we can't say that, then I submit that we have forgotten about the great compassion and mercies of God toward us who were once lost and have now been found. You see, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 that the wisdom of this world is vanity. It doesn't lead men to God, but to their own clever ways and schemes that ends only in foolishness and emptiness. But that, he says, is not the message we preach. We don't preach wisdom from men. Remember what he said? We preach this and only this, Christ and him crucified. Why? Because it's the only answer to those who are lost and hopeless, who need mercy, love, and kindness. It's the only answer. It's the place where God shows it most clearly. And so we take Christ to a lost and dying world, declaring to that world that in him may be found abundant mercy and compassion, grace and favor with God. I love this quote. If you read the communion letter this week as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, you'll remember this quote from Spurgeon on a sermon he gave on Hebrews 5.2. It was related to the high priest that we have in Christ. And I love this quote. Now, the mercy for us is that our great high priest is willing to receive the sinful and the suffering, the tried and the tempted. He delights in those that are bruised reeds and smoking flax, for thus he is able to display his sacred qualifications. He can have compassion. It is his nature to sympathize with the aching heart, but he cannot be compassionate to those who have no suffering and no need. The heart of compassion seeks misery. It looks for sorrow. It is drawn towards despondency, for there it can exercise its gracious mission to the full. And isn't that what God did for us? He brought us first to a place of despondency, filled with sorrow because of our sin, misery because of our sin, and he met us there because why? Because our Savior is a compassionate Savior. And where those things are present in our lives, he moves towards them, that he might bring his help, that he might serve us well and deliver us from these things. I hope you see how all of this relates to the subject of evangelism and that there is no fear that we should have, doubt that we should have, or guilt that we should have, but only a desire to be like our Savior, moving towards those who are suffering as we know them to be who they are apart from Christ, and simply telling them with boldness, yes, but in the ordinary work of our day, simply telling them about a God who is compassionate and full of pity for people like them as he was for us. Jonathan Edwards relates this in his wonderful book on religious affections that deals with all that was happening in the first great awakening. He was writing of a woman whose name was Abigail Hutchinson. Some of you have heard that name. She's been highlighted in other places as well. This is what he wrote. He knew her, obviously, personally. And this is what she wrote about her. Listen to the godlikeness of this woman. She often, Edwards wrote, used to express how good and sweet it was to lie low before God. And the lower she says, the better. And that it was pleasant to think of lying in the dust all the days of her life, mourning for sin. She was wont to manifest a great sense of her own meanness and dependence. She often expressed an exceeding compassion and pitiful love, which she found in her heart towards persons in a Christ-like, Christless condition. This was sometimes so strong that as she was passing by such in the streets or those that she feared were such, she would be overcome by the sight of them. She once said that she longed to have the whole world saved. 
She wanted, as it were, to pull them all to her. She could not bear to have one lost. What, what accounts for that in a person's life? It has to be that person's understanding, ever-deepening understanding about the compassion and love and mercy of the God who saved her. And therefore, her heart was drawn, pushed, compelled, if you will, to the lost who were all around her. If I had preached this sermon 21 years ago, it would have been to tell you that this is the God in those days that I had come to know by his grace alone in my life. He had made me the man that I am and desire to be in Jesus Christ. 21 years plus later, he is the same God to me. The same God that I have proclaimed faithfully in these years, that I have sought to know more and more of his compassion towards me in Christ. And I rejoice that that is true. It's not always true for people, but it is true to me. I have known his heart of compassion move towards me in the times of my greatest need and heartache and disappointment and struggling all the years that I've been here. And it has been a joy. All of my sins have been tread under his feet. Every one of them have been cast into the depths of the sea. And part of my greatest joys and any minister's greatest joy is to know this God as he has worked in your lives as well. So many of you I've known for all of these years, and I've seen his compassion, his movement towards you in pity in the deepest trials of your life as well. Have you come to know him as you sit here this morning? The God who is like any other, unlike any other, who is, as it were, Micah. And what is it that sets him apart? He is a God full of compassion, full of pity, steadfast love, who tramples under our sins, under his feet, who forgives us all our unfaithfulness, who moves towards us constantly in love. If you do not know him this morning, I pray that by his grace, you would come to know him now, for he is ever moving towards you in your lost condition and ever calling you to himself. If you would, but by his grace, hear his call. May it be so. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as time passes on for us who are in Christ, the thing that is ever true is that we just every day know more and more about this mercy, this compassion, this love that you have shown to us in Jesus. Thank you for all that you have done for us in him. Thank you that all that we have read in these brief verses are fulfilled in the person of Jesus, who is our faithful high priest. Bless us, strengthen us, we pray in these things that we might be your faithful ambassadors, the ambassadors of a God who is unlike any other God, who shows mercy and compassion to sinners like us. What a glorious message we are privileged to take to the world. Grant us the grace that we might do so faithfully, we pray. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.